Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story, Manners Maketh Man, by W. W. Jacobs. The night watchman appeared to be out of sorts. His movements were even slower than usual, and when he sat, the soapbox seemed to be unable to give satisfaction. His face bore an expression of deep melancholy, but a smoldering gleam in his eye betokened feelings deeply moved. Play acting I don't hold with, he burst out with sudden ferocity. Never did. I don't say I ain't been to a theater once or twice in my life, but I always come away with the idea that anybody could act if they like to try. It's a kid's game. A silly kid's game. Dressing up and pretending to be somebody else. He got off a piece of tobacco and, storing it in his left cheek, sat chewing, with his lackluster eyes fixed on the wharves across the river. The offensive antics of a lighterman in midstream, who nearly fell overboard in his efforts to attract his attention, he ignored. I might have known it too, he said after a long silence. If I'd only stopped to think instead of being in such a hurry to do good to others, I should have been all right. And a pack of monkey-faced swabs on the Lizzie and Annie Watt calls themselves Salomon would have had to have something else to laugh about. They'd have told it in every pub for off a mile round. And last night, when I went into the town of Margate to get a drink, three chaps climbed over the partition to have a look at me. It all began with young Ted Sawyer, the maid of the Lizzie and Annie. He calls himself a maid, but if it wasn't for having a skipper as a brother-in-law, he'd be called something else very quick. Two or three times we'd had words over one thing and another. And the last time I called him something that I can see now was a mistake. It was one of these air clever things that a man don't forget. Let alone a lopsided monkey like him. That was when they was up a time for last. And when they made fast air last week, I could see as he hadn't forgotten it. For one thing, he pretended not to see me and... Arter I'd have told him what I'd do to him if he ran into me again, he said he thought I was a sack of potatoes taking an airing on a pair of legs what somebody had thrown away. Nasty tongue he's got. Not clever, but nasty. Arter that, I took no notice of him. And, of course, that annoyed him more than anything. All I could do, I'd done and he was ringing the gate bell that night from five minutes till twelve till half past before I heard it. Many a night watchman gets a name for going to sleep when he's only getting a bit of his own back. We stood there talking for over half an hour after I let him in. Leastways, he did. And whenever I see as he was getting tired, I just said, Hush! And he'd start again as fresh as ever. He tumbled to it at last and went aboard shaking his little fist at me and telling me what he'd do to me if it wasn't for the law. 
I kept by the gate as soon as I came on duty that evening, just to give him a little smile as he went out. There is nothing more aggravating than a smile when it is properly done. And there was no signs of my lord, and after practicing it on a carman by mistake, I had to go inside for a bit and wait till he had gone. The coast was clear by the time I went back, and and I just stepped outside with my back up against the gate post to have a pipe. When I see a boy coming along with a bag, good-looking lad of about fifteen, he was, nicely dressed in a serge suit, and he no sooner gets up to me than he puts down the bag and looks up at me with a timid sort of little smile. Good evening, Captain. He says, "It wasn't the fact. He wasn't the first that have made that mistake. Older people than him have done it." Good evening, my lad. I says. I suppose he says in a trembling voice. I suppose you ain't looking out for a cabin boy, sir. Cabin boy, I says. No, I ain't. I run away from home to go to sea. He says, and I'm afraid of being pursued. Can I come inside? Before I could say no, he'd come, bag and all. And before I could say anything else, he had nipped to the office. Stood there with his hand on his chest, panting. I know I can trust you, he says. I can see it by your face. What do you run away from home for? I says. Have they been ill treating of you? Ill treating me, he says with a laugh. Not mine. I expect my father is running all over the place offering rewards for me. He wouldn't lose me four thousand pounds. I pricked up my ears at that. I don't deny it. Anybody would. Besides, I knew it would be doing him a kindness to hand him back to his father, and then I did a bit of thinking to see how it was to be done. Sit down, I says, putting three or four ledgers on the floor behind one of the desks. Sit down and let's talk it over. We talked away forever so long, but do all I would, I couldn't persuade him. His head was stuffed full of coral islands and smugglers and pirates and foreign ports. He said he wanted to see the world and flying fish. I love the blue billers, he says. The heaving blue billers is what I want. I tried to explain to him who would be doing the heaving, but he wouldn't listen to me. He sat on them ledgers like a wooden image, looking up at me and shaking his little head. And when I told him of storms and shipwrecks, he just smacked his lips and his blue eyes shone with joy. After a time, I saw it was no good trying to persuade him, and I pretended to give way. I think I can get you a ship with a friend of mine, I says. But mind, I've got to relieve your poor father's mind. I must let him know what's become of you. Not before I've sailed, he says very quick. Certainly not, I said. But you must give me his name and address. In order to Blue Shark, that's the name of your ship. Is clear of the land. I'll send him a letter with no name to it, saying where you're going. He didn't seem to like it at first, and said he would write himself. But order I to point it out that he might forget. And that I was responsible. He gave way and told me that his father was named Mister Watson, 
Anthony kept a big draper's shop in the commercial road. We talked a bit out at that, just to stop his suspicions. Then I told him to stay where he was on the floor, out of sight of the window, while I went to see my friend the captain. I stood outside for a moment trying to make up my mind what to do. Of course, I had no business, strictly speaking, to leave the wharf, but on the other hand, there was a father's art to relieve. I edged along bit by bit while I was thinking, and then, after looking back once or twice to make sure that the boy wasn't watching me, I set off for the commercial road as hard as I could go. I'm not so young as I was. It was a warm evening, and I hadn't even got a bus fare on me. I had to walk all the way. And by the time I got there, I was off-melted. It was a tidy-sized shop with three or four nice-looking gals behind the counter and things like babies' high chairs for the customers to sit on long in the leg and ridiculously small in the seat. I went up to one of the gals and told her I wanted to see Mr. Watson. On private business, I says, very important. She looked at me for a moment and then she went away and fetched a tall, bald-headed man with gray side whiskers and a large nose. What do you want, he says, coming up to me. I want a word with you in private, I says. This is private enough for me, he says. Say what you have to say and be quick about it. I drawed myself up a bit and look at him. Perhaps you ain't missed him yet, I says. Missed him, he says with a growl. Missed who? Your son. Your blue-eyed son, I says, looking him straight in the eye. Look here, he says, spluttering. You be off. How dare you come here with your games? What do you mean by it? I mean, I says, getting a bit out of temper, that your boy has run away to go to sea, and I've come to take it to him. He seemed so upset that I thought he was going to have a fit of fuss. And it seemed only natural, too. And I see that the best-looking girl and another was having a fit, although trying hard not to. If you don't get out of my shop, he says at last, I'll have you locked up. Very good, I says in a quiet way. Very good. But mark my words. If he's drowned, you'll never forgive yourself, as long as you live, for letting your temper get the better of you. You'll never know a good night's rest again. Besides, what about his mother? One of them silly gals went off again just like a damp firework. And Mr. Watson, after nearly choking himself with temper, shoved me out of the way and marched out of the shop. I didn't know what to make of him at first. And then one of the gals told me that he was a bachelor and hadn't got no son. And that somebody had been taking advantage of what she called my innocence to pull my leg. You toddle off home, she says, before Mr. Watson comes back. It's a shame to let him come out alone, says one of the other gals. Where you live, Grandpa? I see then that I'd been done. And I was just walking out of the shop pretending to be deaf when Mr. Watson come back with a silly young policeman. What asked me what I meant by it? He told me to get off home quick and actually put his hand on my shoulder. 
but it'd take more than a thing like that to push me. In order trying his artist, he could only rock me a bit. I went at last because I wanted to see that boy again, and that young policeman followed me quite a long way, shaking his silly head at me and telling me to be careful. I got a ride part of the way from Commercial Road to Aldgate by getting on the wrong bus, but it wasn't much good, and I was quite tired by the time I got back to the wharf. I waited outside for a minute or two to get my wind back again, and then I went in boiling. You might have knocked me down with a feather, as the saying is, and I just stood inside the office speechless. The boy had disappeared, and sitting on the floor where I'd left him was a very nice-looking gal of about eighteen, with short hair and a white blouse. Good evening, sir, she says, jumping up and giving me a pretty little frightened look. I'm so sorry that my brother has been deceiving you. He's a bad, wicked, ungrateful boy. The idea of telling you that Mr. Watson was his father. Have you been there? I do hope you're not tired. Where is he? I says. He's gone, she says, shaking her head. I begged and prayed of him to stop, but he wouldn't. He said he thought you might be offended with him. Give my love to old Roly-Poly and tell him I don't trust him, he says. She stood there looking so scared that I didn't know what to say. By and by she took out her little pocket handkerchief and started to cry. Oh, get him back, she says. Oh, get him back, she says. Don't let it be said I followed him here all the way for nothing. Have another try, for my sake. How could I get him back when I don't know where he's gone, I says. He's gone to his godfather, she says, dabbing her eyes. I promised him not to tell anybody, but I don't know what to do for the best. Well, perhaps his godfather will hold on to him, I says. He won't tell him anything about going to sea, she says, shaking her little head. He's just going to try and borrow some money to go away with. Bust out sobbing. It was all I could do to get the godfather's address out of her. When I think of the trouble it took to get it, when I think of the trouble I took to get it, I'd come over quite faint. At last, she told me, between her sobs, that his name was Mr. Kittim, and that he lived at 27 Bridge Street. He's one of the most kindest-hearted and most generous men that ever lived, she says. That's why my brother Harry's gone to him. Now you needn't mind taking anything he likes to give you. He's rolling in money. I took it a bit easier going to Bridge Street, but the evening seemed odder than ever. By the time I got to the house, I was pretty near done up. A nice, tidy-looking woman opened the door, but she's almost down deaf, and I had to shout the name pretty near a dozen times before she heard it. He don't live here, she says. Has he moved, I says. Or what? She shook her head. And after telling me to wait, went in and fetched her husband. Never heard of him, he says. And we've been here 17 years. Are you sure it was 27? Sart, says. Well, he don't live here, he says. Why not try 37 and 47? I tried him. 37 was empty, and a pasty-faced chap at 47 nearly made himself ill over the name of Kittim. It hadn't struck me before, but it's a hard matter to deceive me. 
And in all the flash, it come over me that I'd been done again, and that the gal was as bad as her brother. I was so done up I could hardly crawl back. My head was all in a maze. Three or four times I stopped and tried to think, but couldn't. But at last I got back and dragged myself into the office. As I expected, it was empty. There was no sign of either the gal or the boy, and I dropped into a chair and tried to think what it all meant. Then, happening to look out at a window, I see somebody running up and down the jetty. I couldn't see plain, knowing to the things in the way, but as soon as I got outside and saw who it was, I nearly dropped. It was the boy, and he was running up and down, wringing his hands and crying like a wild thing. And instead of running away as soon as he saw me, he rushed right up to me and threw his grubby little paws round my neck. Save her, he says. Save her. Help. Help. Look here, I says, shoving him off. She fell overboard, he says, dancing about. Oh, my poor sister. Quick. Quick, I can't swim. He ran to the side and pointed at the water, which was just about at off tide. And he caught hold of me again. Make haste, he says, giving me a shove behind. Jump in! What are you waiting for? I stood there for a moment, half dazed, looking down at the water. And I pulled down a life belt from the wall here and threw it in, and after another moment's thought, ran back to the Lizzie and Annie, what was in the inside berth, and gave them a hail. I have always had a good voice, and in a flash, the skipper and Ted Sawyer came tumbling up out of the cabin, and Anne's out of the foxhole. Gal overboard, I says, shouting. The skipper just asked where, and then him and a maiden, and a couple of Anne's tumbled into their boat and pulled under the jetty for all they was worth. Me and the boy ran back and stood with the others, watching. Point out the exact spot, says the skipper. The boy pointed, and the skipper stood up in the boat and felt round with a boat hook. Twice he said he thought he touched something, but it turns out he was mistaken. His face got longer and longer, and he shook his head and said he was afraid it was no good. Don't stand crying here, he says to the boy, kindly. Jem, run round for the Thames police and get them and the drags. Take the boy with him. It'll occupy his mind. He had another go with the boat hook out of they had gone. Then he gave it up and sat in the boat waiting. This'll be a bad job for you, watchman, he says, shaking his head. Where was you when it happened? He's been missing all the evening, says the cook, while was standing beside me. If he'd been doing his duty, the poor gal wouldn't have drowned. What was she doing on the wharf? Skylarkin, I suppose, says the mate. It's a wonder there ain't more drowned. What can you expect when a watchman is sitting in a pub all the evening? The cook said I ought to be hung. And a young ordinary seaman, what was standing beside him, said he was sooner I was boiled. I believed they had words about it, but I was feeling too upset to take much notice. Looking miserable won't bring her back to life again, says the skipper looking up to me and shaking his head. You'd better go down to my cabin and get yourself a drop of whiskey. There's a bottle on the table. 
you'll want all your wits about you when the police come. And whenever you do, don't say nothing to criminate yourself. We'll do the criminating for him, all right, says the cook. If I was the poor gal, I'd haunt him, says the ordinary seaman. Every night of his life, I'd stand before him, dripping with water and moaning. Perhaps she will, says the cook. Let's hope so at any rate. I didn't answer him. I was too deadbeat. Besides which, I got a horror of ghosts, and the idea of being on the wharf alone of a night after such a thing was almost too much for me. I went on board the Lizzie and Annie, and down in the cabin I found a bottle of whiskey, as the skipper had said. I sat down on the locker and had a glass. And then I sat worrying and wondering what was to be the end of it all. The whiskey warmed me up a bit, and I had just taken up the bottle to help myself again, when I heard a faint sort of sound in the skipper's stateroom. I put the bottle down and listened, but everything seemed deathly still. I took it up again, and it poured just a drop of whiskey. I distinctly heard a hissing noise, and then a little moan. For a moment I sat turned to stone. Then I put the bottle down quiet, when the door of the stateroom opened, and I saw the drowned gal little face in her hair, all wet and dripping, standing before me. Ted Sawyer's been telling everybody that I came up the companionway like a foghorn that had lost his ma. I wonder how he'd have come up if he'd had the evening I'd had. They were all on the jetty as I got there and tumbled into the skipper's arms, and all asking at once what was the matter. When I got my breath back a bit and told him, They laughed, all except the cook, and he said it was only what I might expect. Then, like a man in a dream, I see the gal come out of the companion and walk slowly to the side. Look, I says, look, there she is. You're dreaming, says the skipper. There's nothing there. They all said the same even when the gal stepped onto the side and climbed onto the wharf. She came along towards me with her arms held close to her sides and making the most horrible faces at me. And it took five of them all their time to hold me. The wharf and everything seemed to me to spin round and round. And she came straight up to me and patted me on the cheek. Poor old gentleman, she says. What a shame it is, Ted. It's too bad. They let go of me then, and stamped up and down the jetty laughing fit to kill themselves. And they'd only known what an exhibition they was making of themselves, and how I pitied them, they wouldn't have done it. And by and by, Ted wiped his eyes and put his arm round the gal's waist and says, This is my intended Miss Flory Price, he says. Ain't she a little wonder? What do you think of her? I'll keep my own opinion, I says. I ain't got nothing to say against gals. But if I only lay my hands on that young brother of hers. They went off again, worse than ever. And at last the cook came and put his skinny arm around my neck and started spluttering in my ear. I shoved him off hard. Because I see it all then and I should have seen it afore. Only I didn't have time to think. I don't bear no malice. 
And all I can say is that I don't wish her any art or punishment and to be married to Ted Sawyer. Sometimes a little levity in the workplace is a good thing, but sometimes it can go too far. And you're gonna need to apologize. And what better way to apologize than with flowers from 1-800-Flowers.com. Enter BBJ in the promo code and it will do absolutely nothing because this is not a sponsored read. I would like to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to feature on the podcast. And if you know of any, you may email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel with selected stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bbjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review in Apple Music. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>